Is your greatest desire to be like Christ Jesus? The Bible teaches that in order to be a living example of Christ for others to follow, we must pursue personal holiness. But how do we do so while living in a fallen, imperfect world? In this episode, you'll discover how to include God in the process of becoming more like Him. When we surrender to wholeheartedly following Jesus, we set our lives on a course to pursue righteousness or holiness by earnestly seeking those things that reflect Jesus and His Word. 1 Peter 1, 14-16 tells us, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. Jesus calls each of us to a lifestyle that is set apart from the world for His holy purposes. As you've probably already experienced, such a lifestyle doesn't happen automatically. It takes place as a result of personal resolve and diligent pursuit. The Apostle Paul understood that to be a living example of Christ for others to follow, he needed to personally pursue holiness. Paul's greatest desire was to be like Christ. He was very aware of human imperfections, but he believed that every disciple should be an example of Jesus, and he showed us how to achieve this. Listen to what Paul writes in Philippians 3, 12-14. He writes, Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul identifies a disciple's life as a process, yet dwelling on the past can cause us to be distracted and spiritually ineffective in the present. That's why Paul made it a priority to settle his past. In following Paul's example, we should ask the Lord to enable us to settle our past. To settle a past means that past experiences or circumstances no longer have a hold on us. You know, sometimes believers try to forget the past without settling it. If you've tried that, you know it doesn't work in the long term. Truly settling the past takes time and effort. This week, I encourage you to invite the Lord to reveal to your heart anything in your past that needs to be resolved. For some people, the issue of past sin has never been fully settled. They may know that Jesus gave his life so they can experience freedom from sin, yet they continue on some level to be troubled by past personal sin. The Bible gives us a remedy for sinful behavior in 1 John 1, 9. It says if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins, and he will purify us from all unrighteousness. When we acknowledge personal sin and ask God to forgive us, he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That means that there is no sin that is too great for God to forgive. If we fail to confess and repent of sin, it can lead to unnecessary personal suffering and also has the potential to stumble others. Those who pursue righteousness will practice acknowledging personal sin and seeking God's forgiveness. Now don't miss this. Since God's forgiveness is complete, when we seek his forgiveness, we can then be free from guilt. Free from guilt. Do you live with unresolved guilt? Sometimes people struggle with feelings of guilt, making it difficult to settle the past. It's important to understand that God uses guilt to convict us of sin and to prompt us to repent. Why? 
because repentance enables us to walk in the freedom that God's forgiveness provides. But the enemy doesn't want us to experience spiritual freedom. He has no intention of urging us to repentance. He works to distract us and disable us with doubts and fears caused by false accusations. If we buy into the enemy's false accusations, we will experience false guilt. Do you recognize the difference between genuine guilt and false guilt? We just learned that genuine guilt is from God and comes in the form of conviction. But false guilt is from the enemy and comes in the forms of accusation and condemnation. We can see these distinctions in scripture. For example, Revelation 12.10 says, The enemy is an accuser of the brethren. He accuses us day and night before the Lord. They, the brethren, overcome the enemy by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. The enemy works hard to tempt us with accusations. But this verse tells us that he tempts us day and night. Think about how distracted you can become when the enemy hurls an accusation at you. Look at this verse again. It says the enemy accuses us day and night before the Lord. God is very aware of the enemy's accusations against us. Yet rather than stop the accusations, God wants us to learn to have victory over them. So he in turn will get the glory. This verse says that the believers overcame the enemy. Now look at Colossians 1.22. I'm going somewhere. It says, But now God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Clearly, Jesus wants his disciples to walk in freedom from accusation. In Romans 8.1, it says, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a wonderful promise to know that there's absolutely no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. Then why do we get a sense of condemnation when the enemy attacks us? Well, Deuteronomy 19.15 gives us insight. It says, One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense they may have committed. Did you catch that? One witness isn't enough to convict a person accused of a crime. Think about it. The enemy comes against us with only one voice, doesn't he? And his voice has no power to convict. So he comes against us with false accusations that tempt us to feel guilty or condemned when we're actually neither. Look again at Deuteronomy 19.15. It says a matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Remember, God uses guilt to convict us, prompting us to repent and change our behavior. God consistently uses two or three witnesses when convicting us through guilt. He uses his word and the prompting of his Holy Spirit to point out specific issues in our lives that oppose him and need correction. The third witness is often the evidence itself of how we've sinned or missed the mark in a particular area in our lives. Let me give you an example. Let's imagine that last evening I became frustrated with my teenage daughter and said some not-so-nice things to her in anger during dinner. Well, while I was preparing to go to bed, I had such a strong sense of guilt that I was wrong in the words and tone I used with my daughter that I needed to ask for her forgiveness. I remembered that the Bible says that we're not to sin in our anger or let the sun go down on our anger. So how do I know if the guilt I experienced was genuine or fake? Well, since genuine guilt is from the Lord, we should ask Him to reveal to our hearts and minds any area in which we've missed the mark and need to repent. Consider what happened in this instance. Did you notice the two or three witnesses? 
the guilt I was experiencing was prompting me to repentance. That's what the Holy Spirit does. It also came with the Word of God, as I was reminded of Scripture that shows me where I missed the mark in holding on to my anger. I was also reminded of the evidence itself, an angry tone and hateful words. Don't miss this. Because God's desire is for us to experience spiritual success, He never sets us up to fail. Even though we may at times fall short of His will, He allows us to seek His forgiveness and change through personal repentance. In this case, I asked the Lord to forgive me, and then I went straight to my daughter's room to confess my sin against her and to ask for her forgiveness. How precious it is to experience God's peace as we walk in right relationship with Jesus as well as others. Now, let's consider another example. Let's imagine that my teenage daughter has both a wedding and a school banquet to attend within just a few weeks of each other. I have a conversation with her to let her know that I want to buy her something special for these occasions, but because of recent unexpected expenses, our budget's tight. I also tell her that I've been praying for God to provide and believing that buying one nice outfit for both occasions may be his provision. She agrees, to my delight, and tells me she's grateful to get a new outfit. So we go shopping together and we find a dress that she loves and she looks amazing in and at a great price. Then, while attending the wedding, a friend of mine approaches me and complimented my daughter's dress. I thanked her and I told her that the dress had been a good lesson in personal stewardship and seeking God's provision. My friend shared with me that she was very surprised that I was not finding a way to get my daughter another new outfit for the banquet. She said, you know, after all, some of the same people who will be at the wedding will also be attending the banquet and it would be awkward for my daughter to show up at the banquet in the same dress. Well, now the decision I'd once found confidence in was causing me to feel very guilty. So how do I know if the guilt is genuine or fake? Remember, we should always ask the Lord to reveal to us any offenses or areas where we may have missed the mark in order to repent and walk in the freedom of Christ's forgiveness. So let's presume, in this instance, even though I know better, I failed to ask the Lord to reveal to me any areas where my thinking or actions opposed Him. Instead of settling the issue, I allowed my mind to begin reeling with thoughts that caused my guilt to grow. Oh, you're a horrible parent. You're such an embarrassment to your daughter. Why can't you be like other moms? Do you hear the single condemning voice? Be on guard. Entertaining or investing in thoughts like these can be a slippery slope. If we allow false guilt to guide our lives, we will be motivated by lies that oppose God's will and sooner or later will act on them. In this case, if I had given into false guilt, I may have compromised my personal conviction, gone into debt to purchase another outfit for my daughter, and thereby lost the lesson of stewardship with her and compromised my testimony of God's provision with others. Please don't miss this. Because false guilt cannot produce repentance and subsequent freedom, if we give in to the enemy's accusations, we risk being daunted by counterfeit guilt rather than experiencing Christ's victory. Remember, at any moment, we can invite the Lord to show us where we've missed the mark. I finally did so, and God's Spirit quickly reminded me that He doesn't refer to His children as horrible, and Scripture clearly tells us to refrain from comparing ourselves with others. Because Jesus is our Prince of Peace, one clear indicator that we are walking in agreement with Christ is that He provides us with His peace. As I began to stop investing in false guilt, I experienced God's abiding peace. Are you wondering how I was able to stop investing in false guilt? 
Well, I'll answer that question in a moment. But first, I want to talk about another way that people find it difficult to settle the past. And I think you'll find that one answer covers both subjects. So in addition to dealing with past sinful behaviors, some people find it challenging to put to rest the reminders of prior mistakes or failures. For example, maybe you're plagued by the mistakes you've made in your role as a friend or family member or as a parent. Perhaps the scenes from a failed marriage or being fired from a job play repeatedly in your mind. Once again, do you recognize the potential power the enemy has in tempting to distract us with unsettled issues from our past? If left unsettled, these issues can become slippery slopes to greater distractions such as deep disappointment, defeat, or despair. There's no doubt that unsettled issues distract us from focusing on the things of God and need to be settled in order to fully pursue Christ's righteousness. So rather than allowing these past experiences to influence your present and future effectiveness, ask the Lord to show you what he would have you learn from them. Now, I realize that many of you listening want to learn from personal mistakes and failures, and you may have even asked God to show you the lessons he wants you to learn. Yet, these experiences have also left you with lingering guilt. If you experience this type of lingering guilt, could it be that you're investing in false guilt? How can you know? By relying on God's Word and His Holy Spirit. God promises to enable us to walk by faith as we trust in Him. Yet, because we're human, we will make mistakes. Psalm 37, 23-24 provides us with a great promise. It says this, If the Lord delights in a person's way, he makes their steps firm. Though they stumble, they will not fall, for the Lord upholds them with his hand. Jesus delights in our way when we're pursuing him, and as we consistently pursue him, the Lord causes our steps to be firmly planted on his path of righteousness. Although our human weaknesses and imperfections may cause us to stumble, even at times make errors, God's sustaining power will keep us from falling away from truth. Now we're back to my unanswered question. How do we learn to stop investing in false guilt? Well, first of all, it's essential that we recognize the very real spiritual battle that exists. John 10.10 tells us that Satan comes to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus comes that we may have life and experience it to the fullest. Satan's goals are in total opposition to the will of God. That means that as you pursue God's holiness, the enemy will try in every way possible to oppose you, creating a spiritual battle or warfare. Why? Because developing a life of holiness is instrumental in furthering Christ's kingdom and a definite threat to the enemy's goals. God's word teaches us how to be victorious in spiritual warfare. 2 Corinthians 10.3 tells us this, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does, We each obviously have a physical presence in this world, yet we're incapable of successfully opposing the enemy by our own means or or by a worldly perspective. In other words, rather than battling in the flesh using human means, we're instructed to use the power of God's truth to destroy anything that opposes Christ. Now look again at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and this time look at verses 4 through 5. It says, The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Did you catch that? 
God's word has divine supernatural power to completely demolish any assertion that opposes Christ. Since false fabricated guilt opposes Christ, relying on the authority of God's word is the only thing powerful enough to defeat it. Think about it. Our thoughts and feelings may be very real to us, but they don't always reflect truth. That's why it's necessary to take thoughts and emotions captive that oppose God's word, holding them powerless to have any effect on us. In these verses, Paul is talking about disciples of Jesus when he says, we take captive every thought. No one can take your personal thoughts captive, but you. That also means that personal thoughts and feelings produced by false guilt cannot have hold on us, unless, of course, we allow them to. Paul says, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. There's enormous spiritual purpose in taking our thoughts captive. Paul says that we do so in order to make them obedient to Christ. Do you notice the exchange? Paul is instructing us to exchange thoughts that oppose Christ for those that please Him. Too often, people fail to experience victory because they try to dismiss false accusations and guilt rather than replacing or exchanging them for truth. In other words, merely trying to dismiss false guilt has no power. It is only God's truth that has power enough to gain victory over the ploys of the enemy. If you've been in the habit of accepting false accusations or false guilt, it may take practice to recognize personal thoughts that oppose Christ and to take them captive, rejecting them in exchange for God's truth. The practice will be well worth it and incredibly valuable in helping you to settle past personal issues. So let's continue to look at ways to settle the past. Perhaps some of you have experienced dramatic or traumatic circumstances that don't involve sin on your part, but have left undesired memories nonetheless. In the midst of heartache, when we're most vulnerable, the enemy will work hard to tempt you to believe that there are some personal tragedies and heartaches that even God cannot heal. Please don't buy into this lie. 1 John 5, 4-5 promises us that there is victory in Jesus to overcome any situation in life. Throughout Scripture, we're reminded that God is our comfort, our strength, our deliverer. Psalm 46.1 tells us that God is an ever-present help in trouble. I don't know what life experiences you've endured, but I do know that God wants to help you through them. If you struggle with past circumstances such as these, I encourage you to rely on God's promises and godly counsel to help eliminate any binding memories or strongholds. If needed, Please don't hesitate to seek trustworthy, godly counsel to assist you in this area. Because it will be difficult to train others to be victorious if you're not living in victory yourself, ask the Lord to help you to put the past behind you and enable you to press on to experience victory in Him. You know, sometimes people actually choose to dwell in the past by remaining focused on a more pleasant season in life, or they have a longing to return to the way things used to be. I'm not talking about merely reminiscing about the past. I'm referring to having thoughts fixated on that on the past that tempt you to be discontent in your current way of life or tempt you to recreate the past. For example, a person may continually express that they wish they could go back to their old job or neighborhood or way of life. Or they may express difficulty in transitioning to a new teacher, supervisor, or pastor because they didn't want the previous one to leave. Having a mind set in the past even on things that were good or pleasing to us, can leave us ineffective in the present. 
Ecclesiastes 3.1 tells us that God orchestrates times and seasons in our lives for His purpose. Dwelling on past seasons could hinder us from recognizing the work God may want to accomplish through us now. And wanting to dwell in the past can also cause our spiritual walk to become stagnant. Galatians 5.25 says, If we live in the Spirit, we should also walk according to the Spirit. As followers of Jesus, we are to be continually sensitive to following His lead. Since we can't move forward in following Jesus while clinging to the past, we must practice settling it. So rather than allowing these past experiences to influence your present effectiveness, thank God for seasons that were meaningful to you, the pleasant memories they provide, and the way they've helped prepare you for the present. Then ask the Holy Spirit to train you to reflect on the past without longing to live in it. As you rely on God's Spirit to fulfill His present purpose in your life, you will find joy and contentment in Him. In making disciples, remember God's goal is to transform us to His image so our lives in turn will point others to Him. Since Jesus is holy, His disciples must be resolved to pursue personal holiness, consistently surrendering every part of our lives to the authority of His Word and the control of His Holy Spirit. That's a high calling. But remember, the living God of the universe that calls each of us to pursue a lifestyle of personal holiness also promises to supernaturally enable us to do so. I encourage you to set this next promise to memory. It's found in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23-24. It says this, May God Himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. What an amazing promise to know that everything God asks of us, he will also fulfill in us as we rely on him to do the work. So let's look at ways to include him in the work. First of all, look at Psalm 139, 23-24, another good verse to memorize. It says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me, know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Notice the psalmist's desire to be led in the way everlasting, the perfect way of God. The psalmist invited God to evaluate the condition of his life. You know there's a big difference between someone allowing you to be a part of their life and a person inviting you intentionally including you in their life. Do you just presume God knows he is allowed in your life? Or are you intentionally inviting him to have his way, his will in your life? In following the psalmist's example, such an invitation might sound like this. Lord, you know my heart. I want you to test me. I invite you to take inventory of my offenses and to lead me in your perfect way. Then, As we've learned from studying John 1-9, when God does reveal areas in our lives that are offensive to Him and hindering our spiritual journey, we simply acknowledge where we've missed the mark and repent by relying on Christ to transform our behavior to reflect obedience. In the same way we invite God to evaluate sin in our lives, we should also invite Him to evaluate our motives. Why? Well, in order to do things God's way, our motives can't be self-seeking or self-promoting. How will we know whether our motives reflect God's will unless we ask Him? Proverbs 16.2 says, All a person's ways seem pure to them, 
but motives are weighed by the Lord. Proverbs 21.2 tells us that a person may think their own ways are right, but the Lord weighs the heart. Our choices may look good, feel good, and even be affirmed by others. Yet if we don't invite Christ to evaluate our heart motives, how can we know whether they are truly pleasing to Him? In fact, Jeremiah 17, 9-10 says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind, to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. God is most interested in the attitude of our hearts. It's important to realize that whether we evaluate our heart motives or not, they are in place prior to action. By inviting the Lord to evaluate our motives, we can then assess if they're pure and pleasing to Him. When we act on motives that are pure, the outcome is pleasing and honoring to the Lord. Motives that are less than pure will promote outcomes that are self-promoting or self-fulfilling. Are you willing to give the Lord an open invitation to examine the condition of your heart? As you develop the habit of inviting God to evaluate your heart motives, He will reveal changes that need to take place. Making such changes allows you to alter your course of thought and direction to that which pleases God and will help keep you on the path of righteousness. I encourage you as you develop new habits in your life to be diligent yet patient with the process. In 1 Timothy 1, 15-16, Paul expresses the patience of Christ from his personal perspective. He writes this, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Just as Jesus shows immeasurable patience in the conversion and transformation of sinners, we too should be patient with the process of discipleship, patient with ourselves and with others. I'm going to close our time together with a beautiful word picture of God's transforming work in the lives of those who will pursue His holiness. It's found in 2 Timothy 2, 20 and 21. It says this, In a large house there are vessels, not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for noble purposes, and some for ennoble. If a man cleanses himself from the latter, he will be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful for the master, and prepared to do any good work. Maybe you're listening today and you're saying to yourself, that's me, the one who needs to settle their past. Victory over your past isn't just available. It's obtainable through Jesus' supernatural work in our lives. We experience victory as we walk in the truth of Christ Jesus. You can practice walking in the biblical truths you've heard today by working through the lesson application in show notes. Also, as Carla suggested, don't hesitate to seek professional Christian counseling to put the past behind you. The pursuit of holiness is a deliberate, personal response to the Lord that is Christ-led and Christ-centered and promises to result in life transformation.